Welcome back to Say What Needs Saying. I'm Zach. And I'm Brandon. And today we are talking education, education reform, and everything about it. We have two former educators with us today. We have Dave Ziffer and Mary Damer. They have both been involved in education to a certain extent, and they will tell you a little more about their background. But we figure they have some great perspective to bring to these issues. Um, I, I don't know about Brandon, but I know education reform is something that I'm passionate about personally. Um, I personally hate the, the system we have now. It's a joke. I think it, it definitely needs uprooting from the very from the very base and starting over. Um, so I'm excited to I talk mean, about it. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. Like, I mean, granted, to look at the developed nations and where we once were in the, in the realm of education to see what level we're at now compared to, you know, the European countries and whatnot, it kind of, in my head, the education of the youth is what guides the future of America. And if we're, you know, number 29 of the developed nations mm -hmm. in education, that, that only pretells what we're going to see in the next 60, 70 years. So the revamp is the is the crux of what will probably bring America back to its glory. So I'm excited for what this conversation can hold and what it can bring. Yeah, for sure. So Mary and Dave, thank you guys so much for joining us and for sharing your perspective with us. Um, I figure if you guys want to just tell us a little bit about yourselves, we can start with Mary and then move on to Dave after. Okay, I've um, been I've been in education for 30 years and during that time spent most of that time sitting in classrooms, watching, consulting, was a teacher, was a principal, have done all of that and have increasingly become concerned as you talked about in 29th and once we were a leading country. I couldn't help but be reminded of the need for education reform when I was watching all the riots and the protests and a girl said to the reporter as they were attempting to pull down or do something with the Lincoln statue that Lincoln had been pro-slavery. And that was why the interest was in, in, in pulling down the statue. I've watched in so many classrooms where students, what they learned about Lincoln was making a popsicle stick log cabin. And so they'd spend a week on that. The grade was based on how well it was done. And I didn't see much else ever happening in terms of that. At one point um, in time, history, economics, geography, government, all got blended into social studies. And so whereas a teacher had 50 minutes to teach history, now that's just the little part of that more generalized and often very iffy social studies. And, and the log cabin's not the only example. Another one I always think of is the class had spent a week making Russian nesting dolls. They were in third grade. I wondered if they knew anything else about Russia because they were supposed to be learning that. And I asked them what they had enjoyed, what they came away learning about Russia. Russian nesting dolls. <laughs> Finally, I pointed to a map and at the north of Russia and said, is this up here, this part of Russia? They couldn't identify where Russia was on a map. I said, is this a tropical climate here? They didn't know what tropical meant. But I was also in those classrooms in the fifth grade one, sixth grade one, seventh, eighth. And that knowledge was never brought up. It's not like there was something to get them interested and then they learned the meat. That doesn't happen way too often. 
Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing your perspective. We'll definitely dive a little bit deeper into some of these issues, but Dave, okay. I wanted to give you a chance to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself as well. Hi. So my name is Dave Ziffer. In 1994, I had two daughters in public elementary school. And at that time, uh, the schools were going through the multiple intelligences fad. And this was really the beginning of today's whole idea of no matter what you're doing, uh, everybody's okay and everybody gets a trophy. And if you can't learn the primary core subjects, that's fine because you must have a different kind of intelligence. So anyway, uh, my elder daughter was in fourth grade and uh, my wife was complaining that she didn't seem to know anything. And I had had a reasonable public school education, so I thought, oh, she's just exaggerating. This is ridiculous, bloody blonde. One day I sat my daughter down at the table and asked her some very basic questions like, what country do we live in? And she had no idea of any of these questions. And then I asked her, I gave her a sheet of paper and asked her to write me a, a paragraph. And she asked, what's a paragraph? Ooh. So I explained what a paragraph was in terms of the word sentence. And then she asked me, what is a sentence? So this is in fourth grade, okay? Mm -hmm. So I became extremely hyper-alarmed and I have not calmed down since. So I started interacting with school principals. Uh, I talked to two of them. And I also wrote a letter to the superintendent and the kind of answers I got were the kind of stuff, the non-answers you'd expect, defensive answers from a bureaucracy defending itself. So um, then I got a copy of the 1994 National Assessment of Educational Progress. That's the NAEP, which you're going to hear about. And this is a report produced annually by the U.S. Department of Education. And back in those days, you got it in book form. And I read this book and I realized that there was a national catastrophe going on in, edu in education in general, and particularly in reading and in math, but mostly in reading. So then I became aware, I don't remember how, this was the early days of the internet and people were just starting to get online with America Online and stuff. And I got involved with this group of people that called ourselves the Illinois Loop. And the Illinois Loop was this group of parents who were like trying to reform the school system. And we were just one of several groups nationwide that was an even bigger group in California. We all kind of collaborated, wrote articles and researched, and all of this information was now available online. That network was available before. I ended up focusing on literacy because to me, literacy is the root of all other education. And at that time, uh, the literacy fad that was sweeping the schools was called whole language. And whole language, uh, the, the, the basic point of language is that you don't teach phonics that you use any and every other conceivable way of figuring out what the words might be, except that you don't teach phonics. And so that means that children do not sound out words and they don't learn the correspondences between the letters and the sounds. So this horrified me even more. I couldn't believe it. And I ended up buying a copy of a book called Why Johnny Can't Read. So Why Johnny Can't Read is kind of a cultural idiom and everybody knows the saying, but there are very few people who realize, who know that this is actually a book. It was written in 1955, the year that I was born, it was published. During my elementary education, it turns out, I read in this book, that there was an even earlier fad before whole language called Look Say. And that the Look Say uh, primers that, that you would read in elementary school were these Dick and Jane books. And the objective of these books was to get children memorizing a large numbers of words because back in those days, they also weren't teaching phonics. I, I came to realize that this, this war against phonics by the education establishment had been going on since well before I was born. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason that I didn't become a functional illiterate, like most of the people my age from these books, is that my mother had taught me phonics before I entered first grade. And at the time, I didn't understand the significance of it. When I got to school, I could read all the books they put in front of me. It was like some kind of joke. So I was at the top of my class. So anyway, um, I, you know, I realized there had been this crusade against phonics in the schools since the 1940s. Back to the Illinois Loop, which is this online group. Through this group, I came in contact with people like Mary, who, like me, thought they were going to reform the schools. Uh, and Mary introduced me to all of this incredible stuff. Project Follow Through is the largest educational research project ever conducted. It was conducted by the U.S. Department of Education from 1967 through 1977. And in this project, they tested, I think, something like eight or nine uh, different instructional models that were, you know, the models of the time. And most of them were this really faddish stuff. And they wanted to finally do a huge educational research project to determine what kind of instruction really worked. One of these curricula was something called direct instruction. Direct instruction is very methodical, very basic, straightforward, and it teaches phonics, teaches children to become phonetic readers. Long and short, at the end of this 10-year program, uh, direct instruction completely blew away all the other instructional models that they were testing. And what had happened um, at the end of this in 1977 was that instead of directing the schools to use the successful model, they basically didn't do anything. They said, well, here's the results, do whatever you want. The schools invariably seem to avoid the successful uh, curriculum in favor of the feel-good, touchy-feely, faddish other curriculum that had failed miserably, many of which, most of which, were actually worse than the educational standard of the day that was being taught in the typical um, typical uh, schools. So in horror from all of this, I pulled our daughters out of public school and we became homeschoolers. And we ended up homeschooling them until they entered high school. A couple of years later, after we were homeschooling them, I started an after-school tutoring program called I Can Read mm-hmm. in the western suburbs of Chicago. And in this tutoring program, we, it was a for-profit program, and people came to us, brought their kids. And the people who came to us were mostly uh, people who had children, which for some, who for some strange reason were failing at reading, despite you know, being in these relatively well-financed schools in the affluent suburbs of Chicago. Uh, We used, uh, because of Mary's influence, we used direct instruction reading curricula, uh, the most successful reading curriculum in the world that I know of. It's called Reading Mastery. And we had children three times a week for 13 weeks. And we did three of these 13-week sessions per year in the fall, spring, and summer. And we advanced these children typically one grade level for every one of these sessions. So for every 13 weeks using direct instruction, we were able to advance their reading level an entire school year. And um, toward the end of that time, we had three locations and we had serviced um, several hundred students. Now, I am a programmer by trade and I did the registration and placement and I was heavily involved in the administration of this program. So I didn't meet with the moms who brought in the kids on a regular basis. And I have a terrible memory for names and faces. Um, So during this time and for years afterwards, I would be like in the grocery store pulling something off a shelf or whatever. And some woman I didn't recognize would come up from behind me and hug me and would say, you're him, you saved my child. And I would just be completely flustered by this. I'm not accustomed to being approached that way. And then I would realize and then have a conversation with her and try to pretend that I remembered who she was and who her kid was and all this. But this happened to me several times. 
And I just couldn't believe it, this, this contrast between what I was able to do um, with this after-school reading program versus what was happening to their kids, you know, month in and month out in the, in the public schools. So then we had the tech bust. So there was this big run up in the stock market in 2000. There was a huge crash. It wiped out the job market in the Western Chicago suburbs. And we tried to um, survive into the fall of 2002, but we just couldn't because there just weren't enough people signing up. So that was the end of my um, after-school reading instruction tutoring service. Now, today, I am retired and I'm taking an entirely new approach that I hope will reach far more children uh, with a much more scalable idea. That was almost exactly what I was going to ask, but a question that kind of is looming throughout my head is like almost on repeat is that since this process, which, you know, since you said from the forties has slowly, you know, brought down the the, the, the level of literacy for at least all of America, the, all the youth of America, where do you foresee the current path? And this is for both of you. Where do you uh, see the current path for America for the next you know, maybe 50 years, if we continue on this path, what, what should we be worried about? Why should we be afraid of this slowly declining uh, non-competitive level of education? It, I, I think it in, impacts every aspect of life. One, it doesn't provide children who come from poverty. And I've worked mostly in schools that were poverty schools. They need educational equality and they can have it but they need those skills, they need to read. And without that, to get a job that's going to, you know, pay them, house, children, it takes all of that away. And so for me, the educational equality issue was primary. I was married to a college professor and I was a college professor for a, a time, mostly with liberal arts professors. and. They, the, I always remember the English professor who said, I can't teach Dickens anymore. They can't read it. Um, there was one professor who did a James Joyce night and people would be in, students would be in chairs from the university and they would move up at, to have their chance to read and they would do this for 24 hours. Um, and you could tell who had had a phonics background and who didn't. James Joyce is very difficult to read and the words were being slaughtered by some students and not by others. We're starting to see a seat because for me, it's hard to separate reading and spelling. If you haven't had phonics, unless you have our, one of the very few individuals with an amazing ability to memorize visually, um, spelling presents problems. And so when you talk to the best people in the best university in the, in the state, and they're people who, want to, who are there, they got in, they passed the test, and they want to be English teachers, but they can't spell. Our college students, we had to have a writing course for them just so they always would write in a sentence with the period. And they don't have access to the knowledge that one gains from books from reading, that is the, it's the best way to build vocabulary, which is supposed to have shrunk in the last 10 years. Um, and it's the best way to know that Lincoln was not pro-slavery. And we know that the brain changes for a reader. So those are some of the things that come to mind. Dave, did you have anything else while I was talking? 
Well, looking into the future, I see uh, either there's going to be a profound change, uh, something tantamount to the complete privatization of the public schools in which uh, the, the quality of education dramatically improves and all of this fadism disappears, um, or we're going to have a national collapse. Because functional illiteracy is something that's well hidden. People don't realize that their own children are functionally illiterate. They come home with good grades all of this, and people don't realize that their peers are functionally illiterate. I have been shocked in certain circumstances where I had a chance to listen to certain of my peers read to realize that they really couldn't do it. So we have a, a uh, society in which uh, the population seems to have perhaps even deliberately been converted into functional literates who are maybe capable of reading propaganda but completely incapable of having read the great works or have had read history. And uh, as to Tim Mary's point, um, you can no longer teach these subjects. You can't, these people can't read Dickens. They can't read Adam Smith. They can't read um, Greek history. They can't read philosophy. All of this stuff is far too complicated for the average American today to read. And that's not just my opinion. You can just go to the NAEP website, which you can get to, from my website and see the stats and how they've been stagnant to deteriorating for the last um, 30 years. And um, I am quite certain that had there been an NAEP uh, report before that, that they also would have been equally stagnant for the 50 years preceding the last 30 years. So I, I don't see how the United States can survive as a nation with the kind of educational system we have today. During the last 30 years, I had, uh, my wife and I hosted six exchange students, and these students stayed with us for 10 months of the year and attended public school for the entire school year, uh, each one of them. So we had six students that we did this with, and three of them were from third world countries, two from Indonesia and one from the Philippines, okay? Yeah. And all of these students, every single one of these six regarded our high school education that they experienced as a joke. Yeah, I wanted to talk about it also impacts the self-esteem of these individuals, because when people can't read, actually, when people haven't learned what they should have learned in school, they blame themselves and they're embarrassed about it and they're ashamed and they think it's because of because of them, because of some some fault. That's something. And they'll say, I'm oh, I'm stupid in that. Mm -hmm. And um I was part of a dyslexia group, and um, it, there was a big, it's called ComFest. It's a big community festival, and kind of like going back into the hippie era. And each group, like my dyslexia group, can speak in between bands for five minutes. So I was the one chosen to do that, and I was in between a reggae and a rap group, and the rap group was very popular. I thought I'd go early, sit and see what the person before me said. I had my, my speech all out. And she talked about HIV and the horror. I mean, she was scaring me. I was sitting there, I didn't know that. Oh my gosh. And the whole crowd was just talking to each other. Everybody was ignoring her. And I thought, oh my gosh, if she talks about something that exciting, mine is gonna be a dud. So I ripped up the paper. I made a couple notes of what I was going to talk about, and I went behind the stage to wait to be called up. And this old hippie sitting back there said, what are you going to talk about? And I told him the new one, and he said, you are going to bore them silly. And then they said, come on stage. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? So I stood on the stage and I looked at the crowd talking and I said, you all stand up. I need everybody to stand up. And they're kind of hesitant and they were, but I've been a teacher. I know how to get people to stand up. <laughs> so I was like, stand up and then we can move on. So everybody's standing up and I said, okay, turn to the right. Look at that person. Now turn to the left, look at that person. Now look at yourself. One or two of the three of you is not a good reader. Cannot often read material that you have to. You hide it from everyone and you think it's your fault. You think that it's something you did. It was, I call it malpractice teaching. You didn't get the kind of reading instruction. It would have enabled you to read and have the world at your fingertips. I didn't have a word. N nobody was saying anything. They were just looking at me. It was just like in shock almost. And then I said a couple of things about what they should have done in school and they shouldn't have learned to guess at words, which good readers don't do. And then the five minutes was up and I got a thunderous applause from everyone. Those kids, had, so many of them had been silently blaming themselves, which, you know, is un so unfortunate. And, and it wasn't. And somebody had addressed that issue. You know, I hear both of you saying that this is an issue that a lot of people are aware of, whether it's themselves and them thinking that they're the problem or, you know, it being talked about for decades now. You know, it almost feels like everyone knows that the education system is bad. Everyone knows that there are failures in it. Left, right, center, everyone complains about something, whether it's the level of funding or the privatization or charter schools or, or school vouchers, or there's always a proposal. There's always something that people talk about, but nothing ever changes, nothing ever gets done. And I mean, you could say that about plenty of, plenty of stuff in politics, obviously, but this is one issue that, you know, People on both sides of the aisle can agree that we need to change the system. And so I wanted to ask both of you what you think, you know, what do you think are the main reasons why this issue just doesn't get touched or when it does, it very minimally changes? Is this something that you think is overly politicized? Do you think that the teachers unions playing some kind of role in this, you know, wanting to kind of keep the quote unquote status quo of the the fadism that you're you're talking about, Dave, or the the current curriculum and things like that? You know, or or do you think this is something else? Do you think it's just not like you said, Mary, it's not really a sexy topic, you know, so maybe it just is not in the spotlight. But yeah, I figured I'd get both your thoughts on this. You know, what, why is nothing happened? And what do you think, you know, is the, the best way to go about changing that? Well, my theory is a very simple one, which is that public schools are socialist entities that do not respond to their customers. They have no, nothing to lose by ignoring their customers. They get your money up front and unconditionally. Um, it doesn't matter how much they succeed or fail to get the money anyway. And most of the money that your school district receives doesn't even come from district parents. So the main sources are shareholders of corporations that aren't in your district through federal and state corporate taxes, uh, people who aren't in your district uh, via state and federal personal taxes, um, corporations and childless property owners within your district, and then there are childless renters who rent from property owners and who therefore pay property taxes indirectly. So the vast majority of people putting money into the public schools are not the parents in the district. And then even the parents in the district 
are um, themselves, it's unconditional. You have to pay property taxes if you own property and you pay them indirectly if you're a renter. And so this disconnection between the, uh, the funding the schools and local parents means that the public schools are mostly not accountable to you. And people go in naively thinking they can talk to their school board or talk to the superintendent and talk to the principal and all these people. And it's like, those people know who, who pays their salary and it's not you. And it's not all the parents in your district, even all put mm -hmm. together, all of you put together could not influence the uh, policy of your local school district because the vast majority of the money, money that your school district received comes from the state and the federal governments. And they're going to, they're going to dance to that tune, not your tune. Okay, and I'm going to go into some some specifics of things that I, I see in the schools and, and my 30 years of attempts to reform them and realizing it just wasn't going to happen. I love, I'm currently reading Diamond and Silk. If I'm down, they have, they have, they're so, they're funny comedians for anybody who's not seen Diamond and Silk. And I'm reading their book right now. And um, Diamond struggled in school. But she wrote, the teacher was the adult. I was the child. She was supposed to teach me. And if I wasn't getting it, that meant she wasn't doing a very good job at teaching. It was her job to teach me. As a little girl, she understood what's the foundation of this direct instruction method, which is when a child hasn't learned a teacher hasn't taught, and I add this, or the curriculum is ineffective. Because I've seen amazing teachers move to other schools and not be able to use the phonics program they were or something. And so I don't want to blame teachers, and yet it is a responsibility. But in many ways, the power and decision-making of teachers has decreased over the years. And one of the biggest misunderstandings out there is that parents of children who are in poverty don't care enough, don't do enough, don't whatever. I had a job teaching a special education classroom in a, in a public school. At the time, this was pretty revolutionary. And I watched in that school, it was the only one in a poverty district that was soaring. Scores were just, children were doing well. Parents from Chicago were getting on the bus at five in the morning to bring their children down to the school. It finally got so that there were so many children coming to this school, the school had to hire detectives um, to find out who really lived in the district and who didn't. And to me, I thought this has got to teach me a lesson that no matter where, you know, how poor you are, how affluent you are, parents can feel helpless about their child's school and when their child's not learning. And they kind of just tune off. We had a huge reading project in one urban school. It was the most failing school in the district. And when they had parent meetings, even though they had food and they had babysitters, maybe three or four parents would come. And this was a K through um, sixth grade school. I, we were just starting with this direct instruction phonics program. And I told the teachers, I said, you know, when we're successful, 
And when these students are just learning to read and just doing great on the test board and they're just, you know, this is a success. You're going to see this place flooded with parents. Well, I'm not believed a lot of the time and they didn't believe me. <laughs> um, but so we, we, we started the reading program. In the beginning, in that school, 30% of the students in third grade were at reading level. After three years, and it takes, it takes time to get a student who's way behind when you have classes like this. Um, at the end, there were 70% of the students who were at grade level. And we could have been higher, but one of the things for urban districts they have to deal with is students who are moving in and out and in and out. So we'd have a student leave at a third grade reading level and come back two years later and it was still at a third grade reading level because in that school they hadn't had the kind of instruction that he needed. Well I got a call from one of the teachers about four years later we were had been out of the program for a year and she said Mary you were right once again she said our parents are flocking to the school during parents' meetings. And what had happened was not only was the school doing this reading program, but then the school was also doing a, um, they had added core knowledge. That's mm -hmm. those books, what your third grader should know, what your fourth grader should know. So the children were learning a lot of meat. They were learning countries and historical figures and all this stuff. And at home, these families would watch game shows. That was something that it was done frequently. And all of a sudden, the kids were shouting out answers, sometimes before the contestants. And their parents could see that they, they were so proud. They were so, the feeling of hopelessness and helplessness was gone. And now they wanted to support that school in whatever way possible. The sad right. part of the story and this happens in education all the time. When the consultants go, typical superintendent lasts three years in a school. The new superintendent does not take into account the history, what's happened, what was successful. And so this new superintendent, he brought in his literacy people. And two years later, they were back to doing the same balanced literacy program. And when the scores declined, nobody asked questions about that. I was really proud that the teachers we had trained and the principal, they knew what had happened. They knew how their students had excelled. And so they would sneak teach. And that's what teachers have to do when there's none of the literacy supervisors around. They bring out the phonics materials that they had saved and they would do the best they could do. I love my teachers also did that too. At least growing up in Brooklyn, I knew a lot of teachers that would, they would do the curriculum and they would say, okay, let's go back to the basics. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We're in sixth grade. Aren't, isn't this the basics? And we would have to almost have a secondary education, you know? And while this, while this decline is happening within the United States, there's almost like an inverse relationship globally. So as the United States kind of declined, there's been this random, well, in, from our, from my perspective, at least, uh, this, you know, quote, quote unquote, random growth of, of education in Europe and whatnot, and in Europe and all these other, um, all these other countries, what would you say is the cause of that? And what would you say will be the way we can get to that level of competitiveness in regards to education? Well, when I, 
I'm going to at one point address about six things that have changed that have really led to a decline in education in all areas, not just reading. Right now, math, forget it. We're going to have a mathematically illiterate population. But I can, what I can talk about right now is how those Asian and Indian cultures from India and, and um, the people I worked with from Asia or for, from Thailand. Um, in that school where we had the reading project, there were students who were from Thailand, from Vietnam, um, and from Laos. And they had teachers who were Eastern teachers. And I would go in their classrooms as much as I could um, because by, sec by, the, by the end of first grade, all of those children could add, subtract, divide, multiply two-digit numbers by two-digit numbers in their head, no paper. Wow. Um, they were already ahead of all the teachers <laughs> because the teachers tried to learn how they were doing it and they couldn't in, in the school. And so they had started in kindergarten and they would have them make a train, sit cross-legged, and they would go one plus one equals two two plus one, and they would drill. And every once in a while, the teacher would say, put out your hand, and she'd put one M&M in their hands. Now, I don't know an American kindergarten teacher who could ever comfortably do that drill after, it's called drill and kill in the United States teacher training schools. They wouldn't do that. Now, by the time these kids, the Asian students, were in high school, they um, were the top math champions of the entire district. They'd been able to go from these foundational skills, which they got enough practice of, and then move on to the critical thinking skills that our educators try to start out with. Hmm. They don't realize that you've got to have something there to do that critical thinking about. So it was very interesting to see the differences in how that education, I think Singapore math is another example. Many homeschool parents will use Singapore math um, because it's rigorous. Parents in my district, um, they had the money for tutors and that's educational inequality comes with tutoring because if you have a family that's poor and can't afford hundred dollar an hour tutoring they're not getting that well in in this affluent suburb these kids we figured out 40 to 50 percent of the kids were going to the japanese kumon math learning center which yeah. is incredibly rigorous you have to have a hundred percent perfect to move on to the next level it's um it's quite dramatic but that's how sometimes they they compensate and the asian i i also taught in an in an asian school for for a month or two as a volunteer and um the rigor and the respect um there are one of the things in our culture is that sports are so revered when parents have a bad coach there you go. This is the one time I will get on parents. <laughs> they will let them know they will want a new coach, whatever. And we're known as an anti-intellectual culture. Mm -hmm. And students yeah. who are at the top of their class are often the ones who are bullied. Unfortunately, that's so much so um, permeated throughout our culture. Uh, Mr. Dave, would you like to give your perspective on the same question if you still have it on the top of your mind? No, remind me what the question was. 
I was just saying, due to uh, it, at least what I've seen as almost this inverse relationship in regards to the decline of United States education versus the rise of the education and the performance on these core curriculum subjects within the um, the European countries or like, you know, China, Singapore, stuff like that, East Asian countries. What would you say would be the reasoning for that? And how do we get back to a competitive level? Well, I can't speak to the other countries uh, because... I don't know much about them, but obviously they have something in their culture um, or the parents are somehow more astute as to what's going on with their own children that makes it possible for them to do better than we are doing. Um, in this country, you know, um, our whole culture seems to be moving away toward people having any responsibility for their children. Uh, women are encouraged to go off and have careers and not raise their own children. So now you take your child to some preschool that is engaged in some insane educational fad, and you think that this is a good thing, but you have a child isn't learning anything. Um, and then the child is in public school, and basically the whole time your child is living with you now these days, uh, the parent really has no idea how the child spends most of his time and has no idea if my wife hadn't bothered uh, me to interview our fourth grade daughter, I might not have figured this out myself. And we were a single income family. And so that's what made it possible, I think, is she was staying home and she realized what was going on. If both of us had been working, I guess that neither of us would have known what was going on. Mm. The other thing that I think is just pulling us down here is just people have really no conception of the level of corruption at the highest levels of our government. Um, policy is made um, for the schools at the state and federal levels. And it's all politics and it's not education regardless what the politicians uh, say. You know, the, the public schools in the United States are 3.2% of our GDP. They are a cash cow and they're price insensitive. That is, you know, it's, it's not like trying to sell something to, to a customer who's going to worry about how much it costs. Uh, the schools are somebody else's money. So nobody's watching the money uh, as with a private business or private customers would do. And it's just, the whole thing is just being savaged. Uh, um, my guess is that the curriculum that's chosen in your public school has to do with who got the payoff from the, from the curriculum publisher. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we can't get actual effective curricula in the schools is because somebody knows the right person and they paid off the right politician or whatever. And that's why direct instruction curricula, that, that effective one that we were talking about before, uh, can never make it. They don't have the right, uh, they don't have the right amount of corruption behind them to, to get them into the schools. And Dave, had you said that 25 years ago, I would have thought, oh, conspiracy theorist. I would, I, I, I would have been so hesitant. And then I, was, um, I had a consulting project, and one of the women who was working with me had gone out with a textbook rep that she had met once. And he had too much to drink at supper and started getting loose lipped. And I had no idea that that district's horrible reading curriculum, the um, superintendent had gotten membership to the exclusive golf course. Um, superintendents can get job offers. The company will say, when you retire, and they retire with a nice superintendent's pension, then you can come to work for a textbook company. You really won't be doing much. You'll you talk to some other, you know, superintendents, but you'll get $200,000 a year in addition to their pensions. And then the man looked at my friend and said, I'm just telling you the legal things. There's others you don't want to hear about. But those are some of the realities inside where there's more emphasis on making money 
than on the student's progress. Um, I also think that they that it's threatening. I think it's threatening to people when when kids from poverty score higher than the gifted students, and I've had that happen when we've had a project, or they score the highest school in the state, which happened in another district, they get threatened. It's you would think they'd be happy. Um, our first graders had done way better than any of the other schools on this assessment. And they had volunteer older ladies come in and test them. And afterwards, the ladies who had tested all the other schools said, oh my gosh, your kids are so much. They can do, they did so much better. They did. And the literacy director was there. And literacy directors typically have had so many balanced literacy teacher training courses they don't want anything to do with phonics. And she came up, she pinned me against the wall and shouted, yes, but they failed the guessing part of the exam. And the guessing part of the exam was they would show a picture of an elephant and it would be written under, and you would read the word by looking at the picture. So you'd read elephant. Well, our kids didn't guess. A good reader goes from left to right and, and does not guess at words in my vocabulary, but not at, at the reading. And um, so um, she, she, I explained, I said, you know, next year she'll be in first, she'll, this was a kindergartner, she'll be in first grade and she'll know pH says, so she'll see that word and she'll be able by then her little brain's going to be able to go L, F, N, elephant. And pretty soon, I said, by the end of first grade, she'll just see that word as a whole. Because that's what this kind of phonics instruction does. They have brain scans that show how it changes the brain. Um, and uh, neurologists are stymied and ophthalmologists, why everyone ignores them in the field of reading and their research, and it's not implemented in the programs or in the schools. Now, so given all of those realities, given these, this corruption in the public system or this, this lack of accountability, you know, what going forward... I mean, Dave, I know you had mentioned privatization of the education system as a possible solution. Where does where does that all fit in, whether it's privatization or charter schools or even homeschooling, right? Like, obviously, each each community, each city may have a, a slightly different solution or, or feasibility of each solution, right? But, you know, it, it sounds like you know, from, from your guys' perspectives that the public system just may not be salvageable. So if that's the case, I mean, do we move to full privatization with some accountability? Do we move to, you know, homeschool communes or something similar? What are your thoughts on it? Okay. One is that it used to be not quite as dramatic a difference in terms of education and equality because the inner city had some really good Catholic schools mm -hmm. and um, parents who were really invested in education or not had good experiences in their failing public school would send them to the Catholic schools. When I was teaching at the college, when I had students from inner city, South Side Chicago, which is a tough area and a poor area, I knew they'd been to the Catholic schools. It just because you couldn't come from a great school there and have those kinds of skills. Um, what I've seen 
work, but it has to be a whole state effort. Our charter schools that are monitored, that are, didn't become charter schools just to get the money, because there's been a lot of graft in charter schools that's been ignored. My daughter was a literacy director in one in Texas, and in Houston, they decided that they wanted the charter schools to help people want to stay in Houston, to have people, um, to have an educated force, to help the public schools. Um, and so they, they built KIPP Academy is one example, um, IDEA is another. Um, they have a number of charter schools in Houston that have been, and in some of the other big Texas towns that have been supported. Um, in my state, if you want to have a charter school, you can't, you can't get a building. That you can't get money for a building, even though in a in and charter schools are public schools. Um, the, the regular public school gets that building. The mm -hmm. charter schools often in moldy places. Um, I, there were some charter schools I'd be sick after I was in them. The, the school maybe had stopped teaching in that building because there was asbestos. So when I've seen, like the one my daughter was in, a thousand students, mostly Hispanic, would enter a lottery to get into that school. Now they could only take a small portion of those thousand students. And if a student had Down syndrome and won the lottery, that student was in that school. If a student who didn't speak a word of English was in the lottery, they were in that school. It was one of the best situations for kids who were coming from poverty that I've seen to date. But the state really supported those schools. I think it has, my own sense is it has a lot to do with Barbara Bush. She was, and this still has a foundation for reading. And um, Texas had tried, what we haven't mentioned is one of the biggest problems and the reason schools are the way they are today, and that's teacher colleges. Teacher colleges of education, teach, drill and kill teach the children to teach each other best. Edie Hurst says, avoid the words um, when your school says we're teaching critical thinking or learning to learn because that means projects and no foundational knowledge. You don't start with the learning to learn or the critical thinking. Right. You start learning who was Lincoln? Why did he live? What were those pioneer communities like? What was his role? What did he end up being? Or, and you make the popsicle thing uh, when you're in kindergarten or preschool because you, knowledge builds on knowledge. Mm -hmm. But if we don't provide the initial knowledge, there's nothing to build on. We've got to have the foundation. For example, I assigned student teachers, my student teachers had to go out and teach three children math facts each day that they went out in their school. I got the angriest letters back from teachers. They had learned this all in ed school, that teaching math facts because of calculators was useless and an old fashioned skill. Well, you talk to the college professors who tell you that math facts are the language of numbers. Unless in your head, you automatically know 10 minus five is five, but you can't estimate. They're having students come from high schools with A's and B's in math, maybe all A's, and they get to college. And all of a sudden, they're just can't do the higher math. We've, we've closed the gates to doing higher math. And in this technology-based culture, 
is really nothing more important. Well, uh, when it comes to the prognosis here, this is where Mary and I part ways. Um, mm -hmm. I, it sounds like to me like Mary is still hopeful for the system and <laughs> charter schools and all this kind of stuff. But unfortunately, all of this stuff still answers to the same corrupt government that uh, the current system does. And, and no matter how often we try it, it never seems to work. Um, so I have absolutely no hope. But given the union control of the school system and the complete um, insanity of the education schools. I see absolutely no hope whatsoever for um, any reform of our current public education system. I wouldn't uh, wouldn't waste time on it. We can't win with private tutoring services because even if they're successful, even if they do a great job, and many of them do, the vast majority of people in our society can't possibly afford them, and uh, they're nowhere near enough of them. And uh, that's only going to reach a small segment of students, and the students who need it most are almost certainly not going to get it. You mentioned homeschooling. So homeschooling has um, kind of exploded lately, but I'm worried that the explosion is only due to the COVID thing and people being dissatisfied right. with their kids having to be at home anyway. So why don't we homeschool? And it, it remains to be seen how many people will ultimately end up sticking with homeschooling. Right now, the homeschooling population, the, the hardcores who, uh, who do it of their own volition and not because of COVID, are about three to four percent of the population, and that's very small. And of course, if you're going to homeschool, you have to really adjust your life to make your children your highest priority. You have to get, you know, dump the, ditch the McMansion, uh, ditch the second job. One of you has to stay home and be with the children and teach the children. There are incredible homeschooling programs now, and, and whole communities of homeschoolers that most people don't even know about. And there are now for-profit homeschooling companies, and I see a great deal of hope in those. But I don't see, given our current culture and, and the diminution of the importance of children in our culture that goes on and on and on, I don't see you know, homeschooling ever reaching more than 10% of the population. I, I, don't, I only think in terms of what can I do, okay? So I, I, I'm not going to try to save the world, and I have given up completely on political reform of all this stuff, and I also realize that I'm not going to reach many kids with a private tutoring system. I could be opening one. We open one now if I wanted to, but I'm not doing that. So my biggest hope for children is to uh, go sort of on lecture tours and to tell parents that they can do what my mother did for me. They can teach their own children to read before they enter school, or if they're already in school, they can teach them how to read. Now there's a $15 curriculum that they can use after school, and they can vaccinate their child against educational malpractice. They can at least make their child literate. And the, the saying that I say is, it's hard to elevate an illiterate child. It's impossible. A, a child who can't read can't be elevated. Uh, and conversely, it's almost impossible to keep a literate child down. Okay. I had to laugh because Dave, for however many, 20 years, has been telling me I'm naive. And the only other person who did that was a, oh, she was this teeny little 90-year-old woman who was um, wanting to improve minority education in Dayton, Ohio. And she and a little, and a group of friends, or about five of them, would meet me once a month. And she, she would file Freedom of Information Acts, get the scores that the students had, um, and um, show the superintendent that the longer the students were in the schools, 
the farther behind their national peers they were. But they always wanted to check the data with me first, just to make sure, because this was a big thing for them to go up against the superintendent. And I remember talking to her and saying, you know, when, they, when, when districts realize that this is how you can sort, this is how you can increase student scores and increase their academic knowledge, then things will change. And like Dave, she looked at me and said, you are so naive, Mary. You're very nice. You're very helpful, but you're naive. They don't want those schools to change. They don't want to. And sadly, that group, like many others that I've seen, finally gave up. The parents' groups um, Dave was in had a very short lifespan because within six months, you'd have maybe 20 parents going to school meetings, the school administrators had put up white paper and write down, you know, really kind of obfuscate the whole issue. And um, within six months, the parents thought, I'll never change this school. So if they had the money, they found a private school. If they didn't, they homeschooled. And um, I don't know that there was one parent who ended up staying after learning of all this. One of the things the schools does to make parents think their children are learning so much is to give them A's and B's. <laughs> Your child, if the children are coming home with C's and D's, there'd be riots, but an A or B, it's safe. Oh, she's learning what she needs to learn, and there's no questioning. And, you know, this topic, for some reason, or at least an unfortunate reason, can go on and on and on. But I guess in the moment of time, there's only so much we can say. So at this point of the podcast, we typically would ask our guests and just to give us like, our, you know, if you want to plug anything or any final thoughts um, about the subject, Mary, we can start with you and then we'll go to what's you, Dave, after. Okay. Um, one of the things I was going to talk about, and we don't have time, there are two issues, and I just want to throw it out so it's in people's awareness. One is math education. For the last 20, 30 years, we've had University of Chicago, and then it became common, now people call it common core math, but it's the same. And it's where you take a simple problem, and instead you have 20 steps. And we have a really good link tape to um, the weather woman in Seattle, really describing that program. Um, what happened with that math that started at the most expensive private school in Chicago and the parents there, because I, I knew a couple, two years of tutoring for their children because it didn't teach math facts or fractions very well, if at all. So these... Um, the parents, so, so, so math, if you could have tutoring, sometimes the scores in districts even went up because so many kids were being tutored. But the kids whose parents couldn't do that or didn't know about it, this is where education equality totally falls down. They're lost. I was suddenly being called as a behavior consultant in the math classes when they started these programs because nobody knew they were supposed to teach themselves addition of fractions with blocks. And when you have sixth graders do that around a table, they make up games where they flip the blocks. And so 
what's happened? Okay, we have this whole group of students who can't do any math. Um, they, they didn't acquire the skills. And so I just read, I hadn't known about this, but Seattle has decided that the solution is to um, combine cultural things with math and that Western math is discriminatory for minority children. That was, that's what they've come up with. And there's a couple other cities that are gonna be implementing these curriculum. Questions like, what's beautiful about math? What in math is oppressive to certain populations and why? That in and of itself even gets into uh, standard testing and, you know, you know, it's countrywide testing, SATs, ACTs, and I've heard that across the board. But um, I'll let you go, uh, Dave. I'll let you say your, your final points. My new initiative is to reach as many children, especially low-income children and uh, children of color who are doing the worst, mm-hmm. and through um, speaking to groups of parents. So my website is called mychildwillread.org. Then I have a, uh, a menu item uh, that uh, explains how uh, reading, uh, how good readers read and how poor readers fail to read, okay? And then there's uh, a menu item that's teach your child. So what my, uh, the whole purpose at the end of all of this is that I am trying to get the word out to people that there is a $15 book that you can buy. It's called Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons. It sounds very trite and sounds ridiculous or magical or something like that. And I can tell you that it's the closest thing to magic you'll ever experience in your life. It's a do-it-yourself version. And we, we taught our children with that. I taught my children with that book. Um, starting what was the website again? It's called Teach Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons. And you can there's a big links to it in my website. Okay, so you can get there from mychildwillread.org. And this book is extremely well-designed. It, it turns your child into a phonetic reader who is somebody who decodes automatically and therefore doesn't have to guess and use all sorts of deductive strategies to try to just figure out what the words are. Your child reads extremely smoothly and basically hears the sentences as though someone had spoken them. And that's what phonetic reading is all about. This is possibly the most effective curriculum ever designed and you can buy it for $15 and you can teach your own child to read after school or wherever or whenever. Or if you're a homeschooler, you can use it as part of your homeschool program. And, um, you know, my objective is to get the word out about this book to as many uh, people as possible. Um, there's a lot of parents who've already figured this out. The book is on Amazon. You can buy it. There's many places where you can buy it. On Amazon, it has over 9,000 reviews. And it's number one in at least three categories. It is the number one seller on Amazon in at least three categories. And the categories are parenting and family reference, language experience approach to teaching. Okay, that's kind of arcane. It's probably not too hard to be number one in that. But it's also number one in family activity. And I actually find all of this hard to believe that it's actually number one in all those categories already. It's sold many hundreds of thousands, probably a a million or two million copies by now. But the people who need it the most do not need, do not know about it. And uh, so on my website also is a contact form where you can fill out your own information. If you want me to speak to your parents group about this book and show you in detail how this book works and how to use it and why it succeeds, 
Um, I will come out and speak to your parents group, uh, especially if you're in the Twin Cities area in Minnesota. Um, I will travel to other places. The only thing I ask is that my travel expenses be reimbursed. And I think this is a real critical time in which there could be change. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we can be the start of that by at least talking about it. Thank you for exactly. saying what needs saying and for, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Of course, yeah. have a good one. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Say What Needs and on Instagram and Facebook at Say What Needs Saying for live updates and sound bites from our actual podcast. Don't forget to continue the discussion. Thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>